Well, good morning, church. Thank you so much for worshiping the Lord with us here this morning. It's just so good to hear all, the, all your voices lifted up in praise to the one who saved us. And uh, today we are going to be taking communion together uh, at the end of service. And But before we do that, we are going to walk through, uh, I, I thought it would be appropriate since we really went through the pillars of our faith and our, our theology in God with the students during VBS. Uh, we, we don't believe in, in just talking about animals walking in two by two, but we believe deeply that we need to teach our kids just the serious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we walk through five of the main points of that uh, doctrine, of that, of that belief. And so I'm just going to review a lot of that here this morning, leading into uh, taking communion together, because uh, just because we're adults doesn't mean that we don't need to hear this, and just because we're believers doesn't mean we don't need to hear this over and over again, because how easy we forget, right? I mean, can you tell me what you ate for dinner Tuesday this last week? You'd really have to probably stop and think about it. I know my wife probably could because God has gifted her with that kind of a brain. But most of us, the rest of us, uh, oftentimes we forget. And it's, it's good to get a refresher. It's good to get a reminder. Plus, you never know. You never know who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and who needs to receive the gospel. You never know who God has called. God knows, but uh, it is our duty, our responsibility to share and publicly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to every creature. And so that is my great privilege and honor this morning is to share the gospel with you. Um, but first, I just want to give a little insight into the VBS week because that was all encompassing over the last month or so. Many of us have just dedicated hours and hours and time here setting up for that. Uh, teach, we, have, we had some great teachers. Uh, many of you are here this morning. And you have dedicated you dedicated your whole week to being there for the kids, to opening up the Word of God, to sharing the gospel with them. And I heard some really good reports that I know in Jamie's class there were at least fourteen that stepped forward and made a confession of faith uh, with with Jamie, and she got to pray with them. And I I, I just remember, and, and Marcus can attest to this as well. When when she came to tell me about this, she could hardly get the words out. She was just overcome by emotion. Of, of the moment. Even now, she's starting to tear up. Um, but I, I, and I've talked to multiple other teachers who had similar experiences where kids for the first time were understanding and giving their life to Jesus Christ. And so uh, it, it made it all worth, worth it. Even, even just for one, or I would say even just for planted seeds that 20 years from now make the decision and we we're part of that process, it, it would all be worth it. Because that's what we're called to do, is to share the gospel to every creature. And, you know, we, we, uh, the primary thing was the gospel. That's what we're passionate about. We're passionate about the Word of God and teaching it uh, to this generation. But we're also passionate about having fun, and we had plenty of fun. You know, I think God expects His children to have fun, to have joy, to smile every once in a while, to laugh every once in a while. I mean, you know, it, we should be very serious about the Word of God, but if we're so serious and rigid that there's no joy coming through that rigidity, then uh, what, what are we saved from? What, are, we really, are we really saved? Do we have the light of Christ in our life? Do we have the joy of Christ in our life? And so we celebrate that this week. We had tons of fun. Jared was outside getting the kids all wet and sometimes the adults all wet. And uh, they were just having a great time. We had 
awesome crafts that were put on by Carrie Coe and a great group of people helping them with, with crafts. Uh, we had music. Elizabeth Gillum always does a wonderful job standing up here leading the kids in song. The, the uh, Friday evening program where we had a barbecue and we came in was awesome because the kids from the community and beyond invited their parents, invited their family. And so this place was packed. I mean, I've only ever seen it more packed one time, and that was during a, a funeral of a, of a matriarch of Deer Park. But uh, it, it was like, you know, standing room only, essentially. And there were parents here. There were people here that I don't normally see. And there, there was even a guy who, when I was sharing the gospel, uh, looked disgusted by it. And he stood up and he walked out. And so, you know, that we'll take that how, how it is, but that, that happens. But there were other people who were wide-eyed and who were hearing the gospel, maybe explained clearly for the first time. And I, I, you know, I believe that we made an impact. So all that just to say, all of your work, uh, all the work that went into this, all your prayers, I know many of you spent time in prayers, your donations, everybody who lifted a finger to help out, you played a part in this, and so not one person is greater than the other. We all played an equal part in putting this together. So I just want to thank you for your faithfulness in serving, your servant attitudes and your servant hearts. And I, I just think this was the best VBS yet. I just think it was truly wonderful. So uh, with that said, we do want to walk through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what that means to us, why we take communion. But first, let's say a word of prayer, and we'll do just that. Father, how good it is to come to you with praises and thanksgiving and requests and prayers. How good it is to be able to do that. And God, it's you who made the way. We thank you, Lord, for your love, your faithfulness, even when we're faithless. God, we thank you for being the mighty an awesome, sovereign creator of all things. Thank you for being perfect and good, setting that perfect standard of righteousness. And thank you, God, for coming into our hearts and our lives, making it possible for us to be with you. I pray now, God, as we look through your word and we look through your precepts, that, God, you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, by your word of truth, and that we would be inspired and built up this morning in our faith. We love you, God. We can only claim to be sinners saved by your grace. So we thank you, and we give you all praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on Monday, what we taught the kids was, number one, that God is the creator, and he is the lawgiver, that God is one. There is one God. There aren't multiple gods spread out across the universe or uh, the multiverse, but that rather there is one God, one creator, and therefore he is the lawgiver. He's the one who gets to make the rules and set the standard. Nobody else. The Bible very clearly tells us that God is God and he is a creator. In fact, if you open up your Bibles, you look at the very first chapter, the very first verse of the Bible, it tells us this very fact. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who created? God created. So right from the very beginning, the Bible, God's word, sets the tone that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And then as we look through Psalm 86.10, it says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone 
our God. And James, did I hear some kids repeating that back there? The memory verse, you were repeating the memory verse. That's very good. James 4.12 also says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. So God, the creator, is also able to save us, who ultimately we, we ruined it. We had it perfect. We had it in paradise with God in the garden, but our sin enticed us. Uh, we loved our sin more than we loved God, and we turned our face from God, and we sinned against him. We offended his, his holy character. And so therefore, God said, God determined, God the creator determined that death would be the result. That would be the punishment. That if you sin against God because he is perfect and holy, then death is the punishment for that. And some people might say, well, that's not fair. Some people might say, well, it was just a fruit. That's all it was, a fruit from this tree. Big deal, God. You know, get over it. You know, what, what's the problem? The people who say that cannot comprehend the holiness of God. And even those of us who get it and agree with it, we still fail to comprehend the full holiness and the righteousness of God. God is absolutely perfect in his being. He is absolutely perfect and righteous in his being. And he is God. And so therefore, he gets to make the rules. So when we come along and we say, well, that's not fair. I think it should be a different way. Or if we start to contradict the scripture with our own ideas or we adopt the ideas of the world and then we apply those to God, the one and only creator, then we, in essence, are putting ourselves on the throne and we are calling ourselves God. But it is God alone who gets to set the standard. But it's also God who can save. And thank God for us that God is good. And because God is good, he saves. And that's how we know. And I had a conversation with my youngest daughter recently, and she just asked, I believe in God, but how do we know that God is good? Like, what, what indicates that God is good? There, there's a lot of evil things happening in the world. She's really hooked on, like, supernovas right now and nuclear bombs. Like, for some reason, she gets, like, hooked on this thing, and that becomes her, her thing she talks about and she researches. And right now, it's, it's uh, nuclear warfare. So she keeps asking all these questions about, you know, if, if a nuke hits Seattle, are we safe? Well, we'll be safe from the immediate blast, but the wind can carry some of that, that uh, toxicity over here, and we'd probably be in big trouble, yeah. And so we talk about these things, and she just wonders, you know, well, if, if God is good, then why does he allow evil things to happen? Why do people suffer? Things like that. And so we get into these conversations. So when we look at God, and we look at what he promised Adam and Eve, what did he promise? He said, if you eat from this tree... You will surely die. They ate from the tree. They died, though not all the way. They were only, uh, in, in the words of Princess Bride, they were only mostly dead. We right now are only mostly dead. But the way we know that God is good is because he demonstrated his grace. That even though he said, you will surely die, he offered a way to be reconciled. He offered a way to be saved, to live, to have eternal life. But God also is a just God, because what kind of God would he be if he didn't follow through with a punishment, even after giving 
and offering a way out? Could he be respected? Could he be honored as a, as a God who is truly powerful and just and righteous and good? I mean, we see this in life. My kids talk about this in school. They talk about things that are just not fair, that we see certain injustices that, and especially in the political spectrum, we see a double standard. We see certain people are treated one way and another people are treated another way, and we just sit here and think, that is just not fair. Where is the justice? And we don't respect our political leaders because they are not applying good justice or fair justice, but rather they're corrupt and there's corruption. But there is no corruption in God, the perfect creator. And so God will follow through with his promise of death to those who don't receive his offer of eternal life. And so to anyone who says that is not fair, that's not the way I would do it if I was God, well, guess what? You're not God. There is one God. He is the creator. He's the lawgiver, but he's also the savior, and he is good. And so that was the first principle that we taught to the kids on Monday. And on Tuesday, we followed that up with the fact that sin leads to death. And we talked about that in part earlier, but let's look at some scripture. Genesis 2.17 says, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. Romans 5, 6, 23 uh, says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we believe that death is a reality. And I, I think sometimes we forget about the reality of death. I think sometimes we think we can't talk about our uh, death with our children, that we don't want to scare them to death by talking about death. But I think it's very important that from an early age, we talk about the reality of death. Because can anybody here escape the fact that you are going to die one day? You know, some of you are thinking, well, I'm, I'm hoping the Lord returns. And I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, it's pre-tribulation rapture and that God is going to come and take me back. And, uh, and I don't have to go through the process of death. But a vast, 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 vast majority of human beings will experience death. And it's a reality. We cannot escape it. Science will not save us from death. Praying to a different God will not save us from death. Uh, eating all the right foods will not save us from death. I know people who, you know, lived like hell for years, drank, smoked, did all, you know, didn't exercise, did all the things you're not supposed to do. Uh, and they lived longer than the people who had a very disciplined regimen of healthy eating and exercise and uh, all that kind of stuff. So there's no certainty. There's no certainty that any, any of us will survive to see next week. There's no certainty that as we look across this church, that one of us won't perish this week. There's no guarantee that we're going to make it. I mean, how, how many of us were shocked by Sue Yusey's death? A lot of us. It was sudden, unexpected. It just happened. And so death is a reality, and we must face death, and we must teach our kids to accept that reality, not to live in fear of death, but rather to acknowledge the fact that death is ultimately the punishment of sin. 
And so God will follow through with his punishment and the fact that we will all die. However, the Bible talks about the second death. So those who don't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will experience the first death, which is bad, and then the second death, which is even worse. Eternal conscious torment, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And so we must teach our children about this second death and that once you're dead, there's no second chance. That in this life, the time, the window that God gives you in this life, that it's crucial that you believe in Jesus Christ. Because if you die in your sins without, without repentance, without reconciliation with God, then you will experience the second death. And so we shouldn't shy away from telling our kids this. We did not shy away from telling our kids this this week, and I think that's part and parcel to why we had success as teachers in talking to our kids about eternal life as well. The third day, then we talked about atonement. So how exactly did God save? What exactly does God require? What is the requirement to have eternal life? Well, the Bible says that atonement needs to happen, that somebody needs to atone for the sins of mankind because there's a debt. There's an outstanding debt on mankind because of our sin. And again, you go back to, well, it's just a fruit, and so all mankind owes this debt to God? Well, the Bible is very clear that the sins of Adam were imputed to all mankind. So every single one of us, even, you know, artistically you might say, as early as the womb, we are sinners. When given the freedom to choose between righteousness and sin, it is the proclivity of man to choose sin all the time. And without God's help, we will continue to choose sin. And that's the way it is. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore, atonement needs to be made, but not just any atonement. It has to be perfect. Perfect sacrifice of blood, a blood offering to God of a perfect lamb or a perfect sacrifice. And of course, the old covenant foreshadows Christ and his sacrifice. We look at all the different animal sacrifices that took place in the old covenant, which were a foreshadowing of the atonement of Christ. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the faith demonstration of Israel, of God's people, when they went through the ceremony of sacrificing animals, this was their demonstration of faith to God, and it was a perpetual, ongoing demonstration. So the way that we take communion together, in the same way, they were practicing the sacrifices as their demonstration of faith. We take communion as a demonstration of faith, Thankfully, we don't have to uh, kill any animals for it, um, though we do enjoy the bacon and the love feast afterwards, so I guess we still kind of do slaughter some animals to enjoy some nice meat, but, um, but rather God has made communion the demonstration of faith. And so until Christ came, this was his standard, that if you're going to be his people, then you need to perpetually keep the ordinance of animal sacrifice. 
And so they did that. Sometimes they failed. A lot of times they got it wrong. But they continued to do that as a people, and God stayed faithful to them, even though they were faithless. He preserved a remnant. Um, and then Christ came. And so Hebrews 9:22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So even though they were doing this, the animal sacrifices were not good once and for all. They still fell short because it was an animal. It wasn't a human being. It wasn't a perfect human being laying down their life for all mankind. And so the world waited, waited on this person to come. The Bible foretold a Messiah who would come and deliver his people. The Bible told of of one who would come and redeem his people. And then Christ came on the scene. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18-19 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The one point we tried to emphasize with the kids is that God does indeed demand perfection. Did you know that? God demands perfection from you. The problem is, can we attain perfection? On our own. <laughs> no. Can we attain perfection in this life? No. So w- what is our only hope? Our only hope is Jesus. The perfect lamb who died on the cross... And through him, we can achieve perfection when we are glorified in heaven with him. Through his blood, we are positionally counted as righteous. We're practically in progress, right? We're practically in progress. This is called sanctification. We're becoming more and more righteous. And you know how we become more and more righteous? By seeking him, by following his commands, taking communion. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later, but... It's about fellowship. It's about studying his word, meditating on his word day and night, being in prayer, um, correcting, training, rebuking, uh, all, all these things. These are how we pursue God and how we are being sanctified. But it's the work of God within us. I mean, you think you're, you're the one doing these things by your own power. Without God, you could not do these things. Without God, you can't do anything good. It's only by his power that we can And so therefore, God is making us perfect. We are positionally perfect in terms of salvation right where we sit. And that should release us, that should free us to give him glory and thanks and to live in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Because according to our faith, you don't have to do religious works in order to be saved. We do religious works because we've been saved. You see the difference? We're not trying to earn our salvation. We can't do that. Christ earned it for us on our behalf. And so why do we do religious works? Why do we do good deeds? Because we're thankful. Because we love him. And because we are compelled by his Holy Spirit and righteousness to live for him, to emulate Christ in all that we do, to live like him. Because he is our atonement. He is the perfect standard. You cannot do better than Christ did here on earth. Christ did it perfectly. 
And so we can only hope to, to emulate. I, I love the words of Paul where Paul talks about he, he wants to be like Christ in all things. The way he lived, the way he ministered, even in the way he suffered and died. He wanted to be like his Savior. Paul fell short as influential as he was. He wrote a vast majority of the New Testament books, but yet he was not even close to perfect like Christ. He still fell short. But thanks be to Christ, Paul is glorified in heaven, and so will we if we put our faith in him. The fourth day, we made very clear that so atonement needed to be made. We made very clear that it is Jesus who paid it all. And I, I love that sim, that, that hymn. And, and w- would you sing that hymn with me right now? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen. Jesus paid it all. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no... Are you seeing a pattern here? There was no sin found in Jesus. From Christ's followers from those who were uh, persecuting him, Pontius Pilate, none of them found fault in Jesus Christ. He was perfect. He was without sin. And finally, 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ was the truth teller. He was the perfectly righteous lamb of God, and he is the only one who could have paid it all for us. And so through Jesus and his perfect sacrifice and his righteousness, atonement was made once and for all. And so we can be counted as righteous through him. The very last thing that we taught the kids on Friday uh, is the exclusive or the ex- exclusivity of salvation through Jesus. That there is no other way to be saved under heaven. That Christ alone is the only way we can be reconciled to God, that we can have eternal life, that we can escape the second death, that we won't be condemned by God, but rather we will be with him. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ's own words. If you say you're a Christian, if you say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I, I go to church, I believe in Jesus. Jesus was a, a righteous dude. He was a good guy. Okay, if you truly believe that, then you must believe that exclusive salvation is through Christ alone. There is no salvation in anyone else but Christ. And those are from his words himself. So if you say you follow Christ, but yet you believe there's multiple pathways to heaven, then you don't follow Christ because those are his words. Romans 5, 8 through 11 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then finally, I love this section, Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we believe that the Bible is God's word, and God's word teaches that we are sinners, that we are in need of a Savior, that Jesus Christ is that Savior who died as a sacrifice and a perfect atonement, and that all who put their faith and trust in him will be saved, and that Christ is the only way. And so I just want to encourage you, challenge you this morning, perhaps maybe you've been missing something in your life. Perhaps maybe you, you thought you were a Christian, but you weren't, aren't too sure. Well, if you believe all of these things I just said, if you believe it, then my friend, now is the time to open up your heart and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's as, simp it's as simple as, as just telling God that you believe in him, that you want him to be the Lord of your life. You believe that he is the perfect sacrifice for your sins, that he alone can save you. You know, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a perfect wordsmith to do it either. Uh, you, you don't have to, you know, have fancy and elegant words as your uh, perfect liturgy as, as you're crying out to God to save you because you believe in him. In fact, one of the, the best, perfect, most raw, awesome salvation prayers I ever heard was from a person who was deeply hurting. And all he could do is just cry out to God in tears and just say, God, I need you. I'm a sinful man, you know, beating his chest. And he just cried out to God to save him, and God saved him. So in your heart, in your spirit, in your soul, if you know you need Jesus, if you don't believe that you have him yet, then now's the time to reach out, to pray to him, to receive. And then you might think, okay, well, if I do that, then what? Do I just go on living like I did? No, the Bible clearly says that if you have been Saved by Christ, you have been born again. You are a new creation. You are a, you are a new person. And so you, you will no longer go on living as you once did, but rather you will go on living for Christ. And so I want to leave this with you because this is a very simple thing. And if, if you are ready to make that prayer, to make that commitment to Christ, I want you to come and see me after service. And we're going to go into my office and we're going to pray together. Or maybe you're not sure. Maybe you still have a lot of questions. Come and see me. We'll meet in my office. We'll walk through your questions. Uh, Jared is also here. Brad is also here. We have many other people that you can talk to. Uh, raise your hand, gentlemen. You can talk to these two gentlemen here. Um, also, Jim in the back as well. His, his hand is raised. So if, if you have any questions, doubts, concerns, if you want to give your life to Christ, talk to any one of us. And we'll walk you through that. 
And so if, if that is something that you do, or maybe you've done that already, and you're just like, I'm just kind of in limbo. I mean, I, you know, I, I went to this giant church that was full of like 500 people. And they, they had people walk up to the front, and I went up there, and I, I said a prayer, and then, you know, that was it. We ate hot dogs, and I jumped in the bouncy cap, castle, and that was it. Uh, and then I went home, and I don't really know what to do now. Well, you know, if that's kind of where you're at, if you feel like you're kind of in limbo and you're not really sure what to do next, it's really simple. Christ gave us two ordinances, baptism and communion. Baptism is a sign or a marker of your internal decision to follow Christ. Baptism is not an act of salvation. Baptism is your response to salvation. Because when Christ causes you to be born again, he causes you to be born again in the moment. He baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. But if you are truly and genuinely baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're going to want to act. You're going to want to respond to what he's done inside of you. And baptism is the thing that he calls us to do in order to express or take that step of faith. So if you say you're a Christian, but you refuse to be baptized, I would seriously question your faith because you are living in sin. You are living in sin if you have not been baptized. And the great thing about baptism is, once it's done genuinely, it's a one and done. It's not something like every time you go to a new church, you got to put on the thing and you got to get in the water and get wet. And, ah, you know, um, the Bible doesn't call for that. It, it's a one and done. You, you do it, you confess, you believe. And at Clayton Community Church, if you come to me and you say that I had a genuine baptism, I was born again on such and such a date, I was baptized by such and such a pastor at, this, at such and such a church, then I will believe you. That, that's between you and God. If you want to come and lie to me about that, that's between you and God, and I might want to take 10 steps back if you're going to lie about that. <laughs> but if you come and say that you've been baptized, we will not make you be baptized again here at Clayton Community Church. If you're unsure if it was genuine or if you were baptized as an infant, then you know, I'd, I would encourage you to make sure to be baptized if you're unsure. Uh, if you were baptized as an infant, you are not a consenting person or individual. And I love the heart and mind behind parents who have, who have done that in the past um, because they truly genuinely care about their kids. I would not question their care for their kids if they had them baptized as an infant. Unfortunately, their theology is wrong. Their heart is in the right place. Their theology is wrong. And if you were baptized as an infant, you need to be baptized as a consenting adult because it's not your parents' faith that has saved you. Uh, it's, it's the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, your personal faith. And so if you were baptized as a kid but not as an adult, I'd encourage you to be baptized as an adult and do it right away. Because if not, you are living in sin. You are living in rebellion against God. So that's the first thing. You must be baptized. Second thing, communion. Now, communion is the continued act of faith, much like the sacrifices like we talked about. It's something that should be done continually and perpetually by the church until the Lord comes. And so th this is a very simple thing, but it has a lot of implications. Because what do you have to do in order to take communion? Uh, do, does it have to be, you know, 
some high priest who comes to you in a robe and you know, lifts up the elements and it suddenly transforms into the real body and the blood of Jesus Christ? Or what does Christ say when he was with his disciples at the Last Supper? Whenever you come together, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me, right? So what does communion call for? Communion calls for community and fellowship with other believers. And so communion demands that we as believers are in regular fellowship with other believers, that we come together, that the public proclamation of the word of God is done, that songs of praise are lifted up to him, that we are doing life together, we are loving each other, we are serving each other, that we are taking communion together. And so communion is, is really a call for fellowship because it's a demonstration of your faith of communion with him, that you are no longer estranged from God, but rather through Christ, you are now in communion with him and you're in fellowship with him and you're walking in step with his spirit. You are in communion with Christ. But it's also about being in communion and fellowship and walking in step with fellow believers because ultimately God has given us the church to be that sanctifying agent to help us to grow, to refine each other, to sharpen each other, to encourage each other, to build each other up, sometimes to correct and to rebuke when necessary. The church is God's chosen vessel to sanctify his people and to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so it's crucial, and as long as you're with a body of believers who put their faith and trust in Christ, then you're doing the right thing. Because Lord knows that the church, swarming with many faults, but if we're preaching the word of truth, then that's where the church is. And we're not the perfect church. We are far from it. Uh, but we sure do love Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, strength, mind, we are seeking him, seeking to follow him the best that we possibly can, attaining, trying to attain Christ-like attitude and character. I fall short all the time. Um, you know, sometimes I do stupid things like I shave my beard off and I look really weird with a mustache. Um, I, I never address that elephant in the room, by the way. <laughs> I shaved off my beard and you probably, um, I don't know, my, I, I'm getting some mixed looks and my wife, I keep seeing her out of the corner of my eye just kind of staring at me, seeing if she can figure out if she likes it or not. And Anyway, um, but I'm an imperfect person, and not just facial hair-wise, I, I sin. You know, I think, I think thoughts I shouldn't think. I say words I shouldn't say. I'm mean to people I shouldn't be mean to. And I have to ask for forgiveness all the time, not just from God, but from people. You know, I fall way short. And all I can claim is that I'm a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and that his blood is sufficient to cover my weaknesses and my sins, which encourages me to strive to do better, to repent, to truly repent, and to leave my sins behind, to pursue righteousness with him. And so it's for that reason that we take communion together. We try to take it at least uh, once a quarter. Our big encouragement is that you would take communion in your own homes, as you meet together with fellow believers, maybe you have some company over and you're all believers, take communion. It can be, I, I would encourage you, if, if you're men, if you're husbands and fathers, that God has made you the pastor of your family. 
You are the shepherd of your family. God has put that burden on your shoulders to ensure that your family is built up and raised up in the word of God and in Christ. And so I, I would especially encourage men, men, step up, lead your family in communion. It doesn't have to be all the time, but it's very simple. You simply walk through the scriptures, you take the elements together, and you think about Christ, and you, and you think about your communion together, and you think about and you meditate on what he has done for us, that he is the perfect lamb of God who died for us. So I'd like to invite up uh, Brad, Jared, Jim, and Chris also, if you'd come on up. And we're going to pass out communion. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, take communion with us. It doesn't matter if you're a member, maybe a first-time visitor. If you're a true believer, take communion with us. If you're on the fence, do not take communion. Communion is for believers. Okay, so if you're on the fence and you haven't decided about Christ yet, uh, let it pass on by. There will be no judgment. Many of us were in the same place you are right now. We're just trying to figure it out. So, uh, but the Bible is very clear that communion is for believers.